The stories of some of the world's greatest women unfold here. I am Annette Comer, your host, and each week the untold secrets of success, strength, and boldness of today's powerful women are revealed. This woman grew up in the inner city of Minnesota in a strong Christian home. She was driven to succeed and was often seen as bossy. And as she became an adult, she realized protecting and preparing people for a good life was what really mattered to her. So she became a nurse and then enjoyed a long career as a commercial lender. And along each step of the way, she was the best in her field. Her life twisted and turned like most of our lives do. She came to realize that the only thing she had control over was her thoughts and that there were 12 universal laws that if she followed would bring her abundance. Today, she is the author of a book that has captured the wisdom of these laws into 365 days of abundance. It is my pleasure to introduce you to Judy Bailoff. Hi, Judy. Thank you for joining me today. Hi, Annette. What a pleasure. I am so grateful that we were introduced to one another because it's been nothing but a joy. And same here. And I am so excited for our conversation today. So I'm going to jump right on in. You Sounds recently good. released a book titled 365 Days of Abundance that uses the 12 universal laws as the guide to abundance. So would you share with our audience what these 12 laws are and what makes you think they are real? The 12 universal laws... I didn't even know they existed. I think a lot of people don't. They've heard of the law of attraction because that one gets bandied about quite a bit. So there's the law of divine oneness. There's the law of vibration, which is actually the basic law that you have to have before you can have attraction. Then there's the law of correspondence, which talks about how we talk to ourselves, controlling our thoughts. Then you have the law of attraction. Next is the law of perpetual motion, the universal law of perpetual transmutation of energy, which is basically saying energy transmutes itself into a solid. Think of um, water boiling and turning into steam and then going up in the sky and coming back down as rain. That's a transmutation process, if that helps you understand the word. Then there's um, perpetual motion, law of relativity law of compensation, the law of giving and receiving. Oh, they're beautiful. And I'm going to dig a little further on this because I want you to tell me what has convinced you these are real. The first thing that you should think of is the fact that you look up in the sky at night and the moon stays up there. It's hung and it doesn't go anywhere except for where it's supposed to go in orbit. The stars Everything we would cease to exist if there wasn't that law of perpetual motion and transmutation that keeps everything growing and changes. The seasons come when they're supposed to every year. It snows in winter. It's it rains in spring. It's sunshiny in the summer. The the there's no randomness about the world. That's what's so powerful about the universal laws. Those laws work, have worked, will work. They are God's universal laws. It's whatever you call infinite intelligence. I call it God. You could call it something else. But if, if we are foolish enough to not believe there's something besides us here, I just found it. I sometimes when I was writing my book, 
I would read a piece about perpetual motion and I would have tears running down my face. When uh, one of the writers I was studying described it as standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon and the awe you feel is just like so big, so powerful. So, so when you think about your day and you're thinking about, I've got this call, I've got this call, I've got to do this. I can just wipe it all away with thinking about those universal laws and how grand they are. Does it give you peace? Incredible peace. In, incredible peace. Like, and I grew up in a, as you mentioned, in a Christian home. So I, I, you know, Bible verses and Sunday school and like many of us did. This kind of peace is the peace that says, I'm gonna work, I'm gonna work my plan. But whether the plan is successful monetarily or not, that doesn't matter to me as much as did I give increase to other people in my life? Did I do more for them than they did for me? That kind of peace and that kind of joy is not gotten by material things or experiences. It's gotten by having that infinite intelligence, the universal law of divine oneness, God in you. You know, in in one of the other countries, they say namaste, which really means I see God in you. That's that's amazing. So I'm going to move to another little bit different area. But so before getting to this point in your life, there were many twists and turns. And one of these was your marriage to your first husband. You found out he was cheating on you regularly but yet you stayed with him for years. So why did you not leave him? When I found out that he had been unfaithful, we were in a church. We were pastors of a church. I had four children. Um, my basic Christian principles said to me, forgiveness is required of you if you want to be forgiven. So I felt like I needed to forgive him. I also felt like people deserve second chances. I've always thought people deserve second chances. I do believe people can change if they want to change. Thirdly, I had four children. And at the time, I had a little aerobics business and a Lamaze business. I didn't have a full-time career. I was a full-time mom, and I ran those two small businesses to help with expenses. So I, I just thought it was the right thing to forgive, to try to hold the family together. I believe that communities get knit together one family at a time. I don't think you can just do whatever you want and think everything will be okay in your country, your community, your city, your anything. Like we all are responsible. And I felt I was responsible to try to keep that family together because that meant something to the church I was in, to the city I lived in, to the country I lived in. And we have seen statistically what's happened to our country as families have fallen apart. So I thought it was important to stay as long as I could. But there's a point at which you don't stay. And you hit that point, didn't you? I hit that point. I caught him cheating multiple times. And I said, three times you're out. Baseball analogy. (laughs) Um, uh, And it was the time, it it was the first time I could look in the mirror and say, both God and my mom have said it's okay to go now. I've tried as hard as I could. I have loved as hard as I could. I have forgiven as many times as I could. It's time for me to go out and find somebody to love and spend the rest of my life with. Which takes me to the next question. 
because today you have been married to your second husband for 14 years, who I understand adores you. You didn't just stumble into this relationship. You used a process that you shared with me in an earlier conversation. So can you share this process with other women who might be looking to find the right man to share their life with? I will do that. And I'll I'll say something on the way to saying that is I had a really dear friend. It's actually one of the stories in the book. I had a dear friend back in the day in the banking industry and her mom was um, divorced. Her dad had cheated with a younger woman and she was so bitter and angry and she stayed bitter and angry for 40 years. She Mm. never got remarried. She never got another life. She suffered from that unforgiveness and that resentment. It didn't punish him. He went out and got another wife and a life. So I thought to myself when I came to the hard decision to end that marriage and that particular family, which is an important way to think about family, that family doesn't exist anymore. You can build a new family. Maybe it'll be your kids and your new husband. You have to rebuild. You can't leave those pieces laying on the ground. It doesn't work very well. So I said, I'm going to get myself a little black book or whatever color, but I kind of think it sounds funny when it's a little black book. (laughs) And one of my clients said, why don't you get on match.com? Because all my professional girlfriends who are CEOs and CFOs, they've all found the love of their life on match.com. As a matter of fact, I'm going to a wedding from one of them this weekend. I'm like, okay, I'll try it. So my youngest daughter helped me take some pictures. So I looked young and, you know, ready to date. And we put it on Match.com and lo and behold, I got all these winks. That's what they used to do on Match.com. If somebody liked you, they'd wink at you. And so I started going out with some men that I met on there. And I, when I'd come home, I'd write down pros and cons. You know, did they have a job? (laughs) (laughs) Did they have a lot of baggage? Was it baggage I could handle or not? Were they a good conversationalist? Just everybody has their own list. Right. That was my list. And at the same time I did that, I researched. I had, I had heard this quote over and over is that if you walk down a street and fall in a hole and you go down the street the next day and fall in the same hole, that's your fault. You'll just get the same thing if you go the same way. So I had married my first husband very, very young and I thought, I need to discover what makes a good relationship? How do you build a good marriage? What are the keys to it? So all that reading was very helpful. And after 22 dates, guys that didn't work out, guys that did work out. So Mm -hmm. David wrote and and winked at me and I read his profile and he was different looking than I usually like, but I was like, I'm going to be open-minded here. And I wrote him back and said, Hey, I'm, I'm in, I'm, dating somebody right now. And I never date two people at the same time. So, but I like your profile to, um, you know, ha- take care or whatever. He wrote me back and he goes, well, in case he doesn't turn out to be your knight in shining armor, here's my cell phone number. Well, as it were the next weekend, we parted ways. The guy I was dating from match.com and I had David's cell phone number. I'm like, I'm going to call this guy up. I called him up on a Saturday afternoon. We talked for two and a half hours. We met the next night at Capitol Grill for a glass of wine. We ended up getting dinner, closing the restaurant, and we've been together ever since. Love it for sight. I love that. So as a very successful financial advisor, you have helped individuals and businesses 
um, create and build preserved wealth. But what would you tell our listeners today is the only thing, or maybe is the one thing they must do to experience financial abundance? Financial abundance can come to you if you have $100,000 saved for retirement, if you have a million dollars saved for retirement. But do you have both relationships lined up together? Do you have that spiritual abundance? Because that spiritual abundance will give you that contentment and peace that helps you work on that financial plan on a practical level, because we live in a practical world. Please, 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 please talk to somebody besides your friends and neighbors. Talk to a professional and say, is there anything I can do with this mess that I have so that I could retire when I'm 67 or, you know, Many people don't know what they don't. Again, if you don't know what you don't know, if you don't know when you're supposed to sign up for Medicare or how long you should wait to take Social Security or if there's any products that never run out of money, no matter how long you live, all those things exist. So talk to somebody that's um, a professional that's and find a caring professional. Find like I, I believe it's so important when you're talking to people about their spiritual health or their financial health that you care more about them then you care about you. So find somebody that cares if you have a good retirement and if you have disability in place, if you have those things in place. And I will absolutely, as God is my witness, if something's not right for somebody, I will, I'll say, look, this is, this is not going to be a good solution for you. You don't have the budget to put this in place and not, and still pay your bills. So let's wait for a year, come back later, might be a better time to do it. you are many miles down the road and have authored a fantastic book, what would you say to others that want to write a book and get it published? I would say don't write a book and get it published just because you want to say you're an author. If you have something to say, if you're creative and you can write fiction, God bless your hearts. There's no fiction in my mind. Like It doesn't go there. (laughs) Um, When I, I had talked I tried to write a book when my kids were little. I tried to write poetry, like tried to be creative. It just didn't come. It was, it was, they laughed at my poem. The kids did. It was bad. Um, When there was something that God needed me to say, writing that book is the most fun I've had in my life. The research, the knowledge, what I learned, the people I met through the pages of history, it was a gift to me. And so, I know that ads on Facebook are, there's a plethora of them. Learn how to write a book in 30 days. It's not that we need more books, but we need people to write books where there's something that needs to be said. And I just think if you want to write a book, then what I did, it maybe won't work for you. I, I took a writing course, a little brief one about how to write and publish a book to see if this was even in my wheelhouse. And that gave me the direction for organizing table of contents, writing down titles to kind of, you know, like all the ideas that you kind of need as an author. And I know you have written books also, mm-hmm. so you know what the process is. But that was a good first step for me. Um, secondly, have something that you want to write about that needs to be written. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's really, really important. It was Well, at least it was important for me. I, I couldn't see getting up at 5.30 every morning for nine months if I didn't have something important to write about that. 
it wouldn't have, I wouldn't have had the, I wouldn't have had the motivation to do it, if that makes sense. And then the last thing I would say is even if you self-publish, which a lot of people do, I did, it's been very successful for me. Even if you self-publish, spend the money to get a good editor. Editing makes all the difference. It makes a difference between an okay book and a great book. I agree with that. Yeah. And you're right that if uh, so many people think about writing a book because it's a cool thing to do, it is a tremendous amount of work and it has to be a labor of love. Yeah. Well, uh, the interesting thing that um, I learned studying Napoleon Hill is he said this in one of his, uh, he's been dead for a while, of course, mm -hmm. but you can, you can get audio tapes of him talking at the, the thing, the classes he taught. So it's kind of fun to listen to his voice. And he said something interesting this weekend when I was listening to one of his tapes and he said, he said, you know, I, cause you, he realized he was a multimillionaire. I mean, he, he endowed a foundation when he died, which is in wise Virginia that carries on his work. And he's the best of the best. And he said, you have to understand that I didn't create anything. He said, what I did was interview 500 Titans of industry. They didn't even know how they got successful. And then I organized, I put into a system of success principles, the 17 things that I saw that they did that made them a success. So my, all of his books were just a reorganization of things that everybody already knows, but they don't do. Right. So I'm going to go back to something that I mentioned in the intro of you, and that, that was that you believed as a young adult that you were destined to protect and prepare people for goodness. Do you believe that we're all destined for such greatness? I do. And I'll tell you why. I, I actually have this story in the book too, but it's a story I heard years ago in Chicago. Um, there's a bus driver in Chicago and he's called the happy bus driver. He brings more joy. He treats his bus route like his church, like his, these are people he's ministering to. So he keeps extra tokens there in case, in case somebody can't find their token in the bottom of their bag. He's got some snacks for little kids if they're cranky. He goes an extra block out of the way, which he probably isn't supposed to do. If somebody's, you know, limping or it needs a little, I mean, he has brought, so if, my theory is this, if you can bring joy to your bus route, then everybody can live a life of service and of inspiration. It's how you do something, not what you do. That's what I think. Hmm, interesting. interesting. As a matter of fact, let me follow that up. My son is a, an Iraqi veteran and he, he got medevaced home, very broken, PTSD and a lot of broken bones. And the career that he landed on, army skills are not transferable to a lot of jobs. Um, he has been a bartender for 14 years. But this is what Graham says about bartending. He said, I don't go to work to make money. I go to work to make people happy. He said, I'll make money on the side because I'm a good bartender, but people need, they, if they go out to a bar to have dinner and a drink with friends, they're doing it because they think that's a place where they're going to feel better, feel good. I mean, and he has, he's done things like offered to take an overweight girl with her family at the wedding dinner. She didn't have a date for the wedding. And Graham goes, I can be your date to the wedding. I'll do that. I mean, he, that's how, so he's a bartender. The Chicago bus driver is a bus driver. They're not people who we would say, oh my gosh, that's not, that's a job of service and 
and inspiration. So I think everybody can. It doesn't, it, that's why I said, don't, I'm so grateful that I was inspired to write the book I wrote, but I would have been fine not writing a book if I never got that inspiration. I would have been fine. I have had a great life and a lot of blessings. So my prayer is that this book gets taken on the wings of angels to every single person who needs it. And when I find somebody who needs it, I just send it to them. I don't charge it for charge them for it. I just send it to them. And I say, well, tell your friends about it. Maybe a couple of people will buy some books because it's got goodness in baked into the pages of it. It's got the 12 universal laws and the 13 principles of success and wealth from Napoleon Hill. These concepts literally made titans of industry out of 500 men and women, mostly men back in the day. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's an amazing, amazing book. Not because I wrote it, but because of the people that I put in the pages of that book, what they taught us, what they did with their lives, what they showed us we can do with our lives. I can't wait to read it. For sure. I know that I've got one on the way to me. So. It's on the way. <laughs> so any of you listening, uh, you ought to get one on the way to you as well. And I have one last question. Okay. And this is about having um, a purpose in our lives and a career, uh, as you described, a career of mission. And for you, this came about or got certainly clarified when you had major heart surgery. And Mm -hmm. you had to go through a recovery period that led you to the good health you enjoy today. I'd like you just to speak to how things like that change the trajectory of your life. And particularly in this day where people are, we've been now we're entering our third year of the uh, pandemic and people are certainly have struggled in many ways, maybe not financially, but they've lost people they've loved or they've been restricted or their business has been turned upside down. Relationships have fallen apart. What can you say to people from your own path that you have walked that in that there can be a blessing and a glimmer of direction that maybe they haven't even found yet? I believe that when I had open heart surgery and um, the side effect of it was that I had five strokes. So when I woke up, I was unable to read or write or use my right hand and I'd lost my complex thinking. And at the time I was a, you know, I I had a very big job and my credit skills were an important part of that big job I had. So losing my complex thinking was very dangerous to that career. Um, The recovery period was long and hard. It was scary because I was looking at a, a life that possibly didn't have work in it because of the stroke effects. I was blessed. And I believe when you're blessed with a recovery from something that serious, then you have a responsibility because you're, you got left here for a reason. Like, what are you supposed to do with your life? And the company I was with ended up letting me go in, in the most professional way possible for <laughs> the things I'd gone through. And that meant I was 63. I wasn't ready. Re- I w- couldn't financially retire yet. I wasn't ready to do that. And I, you know, I, I was slowly getting my skills back. My complex, my ability to write came back at Christmas. I had the surgery in June. The next Christmas I was at a store going to sign a receipt. And I, all I'd been able to do is just scratch my, my hand didn't work. 
and I went to sign it. And all of a sudden my penmanship came back in one time. And I was like, oh, oh my gosh, I can write. I got my writing skills back. It was like, I called my mom, my sister, my, not my sisters, my sisters are in heaven. I didn't call them. My, my daughters, my husband, like I told everybody I could find, like, I'm, I'm sure they thought I was nuts. I clearly, I was old enough to be able to write, but everything came back. And, and then I, I lost my job. I thought, well, I'm really all back. You don't need to take my job away. So I had to look for another career. And I believe that was divine. I really prayed about it. I, I actually started doing this thing called Two Chairs. Two Chairs is a book my mom had me read when I was going through the, the surgery, like, a, you know, to kind of give you encouragement. And Two Chairs is the story of a man who was going through a hard time in his life, went back to his mom and he goes, mom, what did you do when my brother died, dad lost his job or whatever happened? And she goes, she said, you know, those two chairs up in my sewing room? And he goes, yeah. And she goes, one is for me and one is for God. Every morning I go up there and for five minutes I listen and God talks. Well, David and I were doing that every day when I was looking for a job. We kind of built it up a little bit with some, you know, a little devotional and some uh, of the Lord's Prayer together and just made it our devotional. But we've been doing that now for six years every single day, every morning. And I believe that's what opened the door for me to go to the company I went to and have an incredible, successful career. I mean, just to be blessed with the most wonderful clients. And, you know, I didn't think I'd be winning awards in my 60s. I'll put it that (laughs) way. I just thought I would kind of pass that. But I can't tell you how much fun it is to win agent of the year. You're like, wow, thank you. That's really cool. <laughs> um, so the, that direction, that direction took me. This is why when we don't see the why, we need to look for. Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote an essay called "Compensation," and in it he says, "We, whenever adversity comes our way, we need to look for the seed of equivalent benefit." Because of those universal laws, the law of polarity says everything has two sides. So in every adversity is a benefit. You may not see it, but you ought to be looking for it. Because my benefit, not only did it give me a great career because I lost a career, I would have never thought of leaving. I wouldn't have had been smart enough to do that. And I sure the hell didn't know what a life insurance agent was or what they did. So all new pathway, right? And that pathway led me to the class that led me to the universal laws that led me to writing the book that led me to talking to you today. Interesting. And there again, those twists and turns of life. For twists sure. and turns. For sure. For yeah. sure. Judy, is there anything about your journey to greatness that we haven't covered that you'd like to share with our listeners? The thing that I would say, and this is a thing that I've noticed, and when I start teaching the concepts of Napoleon Hill, um, I'm going to add a couple things like, you know, all those concepts are there, but I'd say, and we always said this when we were hiring in the banking industry, you can't, you can't interview for character. <laughs> you wish you could, but you can't. But as you're, as you're reading these principles in the book or in your own Bible or in your own life, those basic principles on top of knowing universal laws and having faith in all those things, 
just those basic things about, you know, knowing that your life is 100% your responsibility. You don't get to blame situations for, some, for, for what happens to you because you make a decision on how to take it. So I would say I would be a very different person if every time something ad- adverse had come towards me, if I had made the decision to give into it. Yeah, and I think that's a beautiful way to wrap up what has been an absolutely delightful conversation with you, Judy. And, I and just I, had fun talking to you. Yes, and I thank you for taking time to, absolutely. to share your wisdom. And Judy is another great example of how women are challenging the norm, making things happen, and demanding their own greatness. So join me next time on the World's Greatest Women Show as another powerful woman story unfolds. 